Hey guys, before we get into the episode, there's a couple of things I want to share with you real quick about some upcoming events. One of them being from one of our sponsors, the Nate D Foundation. You might remember Nate's mom, Tiffany, from episode 84, where she shared the memory of Nate and how he was lost to a fentanyl overdose. And you can find more information on them at nate-d.ca. On June 24th and 25th, they are having their annual Nate D Memorial Slow Pitch Tournament in Aldergrove, BC at the Philip Jackman Park and Homerdale. Now, the tournament itself is full, but if you happen to be in the area, you can stop by and you know, buy into one of the raffles, make a donation, check out some food, watch one of the teams that, that have paid to get in and support this great cause. Remember, what they do is to send individuals who couldn't otherwise afford it abroad for trauma therapy, even locally for some counseling and therapy for people that, again, couldn't afford it. They do really great work, guys. They support the show. And, you know, if you could support them, that'd be great. If you're not in the area yet, consider going to the website. That's nate-d.ca and making a donation. Show your support that way. The final mention for upcoming events is you might remember Joseph Fourier from episode 94 and 95 and how we talked about losing his son Harlan Fourier to a fentanyl poisoning. With the pain of that loss, he has started the No Thanks, I'm Good campaign and they are having an awareness walk and rally to bring awareness to the high number of fentanyl poisonings and deaths in our communities that is in winnipeg manitoba on june 25th starting at 12 o'clock at the odita center now they don't have a facebook page or a website yet but they are getting to that in the meantime if you've got any questions don't hesitate to email me ashes to awesome podcast at gmail.com and i'll put you in touch those are a couple great causes to support and if you can please do thanks for listening guys now on to the show job right look at my car look at my business look at my girlfriend she's hot you know like i have an education uh, you know all these hey, things right welcome to the ashes to awesome started treatment centers uh, i told my you about that like you know you one of your sponsors well, we i had a part in, in starting that organization it's it, you know all these things outside of myself that i was i was using as look at recovers from this was me validating myself because look what i have right hey guys welcome back to the show I decided to split this episode into two. This is part two of two with Scott from Vancouver, BC, Canada. He's got a hell of a story. It went on for a very long time. It was engaging the entire time. And rather than cut out parts of the story, I thought I would split the episode up into two, make it a bit more of an enjoyable experience for you. So we're going to get right to that. Just a word from one of our sponsors first. Hey guys, I just want to take a quick minute here to talk about densekits.com. Now, Dentkits.com is an online denture company. We've worked out a deal here between them and I. They're helping me fix my smile. And if you've listened to the show for any sort of regularity, you probably heard me mention this at some point. There's a lot of violence that led to my smile being broken. I struggle with that every day when I look in the mirror. And it's it's a very real issue for me. And I, I found Dentkits.com online and I thought, why not give them a shout? So I, I spoke with Kevin who started the company. And uh, there's some history there with his. I'm not going to get into that story, uh, but there's addiction in his family. And it had a lot to do with why he started the company. Because when you move from active addiction to recovery, the significance of what's happened to your smile really starts to kick in. And in my case, it brings up a lot of memories. In other people's cases, it might just be an extreme low self-esteem as a result. So what they've done, DentKids.com, they've introduced a process where you have to do the molds at home, like the molds that they would do normally in a typical denturist environment. Um, you do that at home. Before you send them back, uh, you have to send them some really detailed pictures of the molds so that they can make sure that you're not going to lose that time sending them back and forth. Then they send them back out and, 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 and a finished product where they use 3D printing or something that affected. That's the, you know, the behind the curtain stuff. At the end of the day, you're left with a very high quality denture 
for less than $600 US. Now, the cost of dentures, it, I'm, I'm no expert in this field. I have looked. 5000 is where they start. So if you're the mother of somebody who has addiction or, or the loved one or whatever, or, or moving from addiction to recovery, this is something you could do. And, and it's, a, it's an affordable thing to do all of a sudden. Once that person has earned that, now every family, every situation is very different. So I, I'm not suggesting that everybody run out and buy some online dentures, uh, you know, as soon as somebody says they're sober. But whatever works for you and your family, be it when they finish treatment or whatever, maybe take a look at them and maybe you can help get that smile back for your loved one. So that's dentkits.com. Check them out, guys. I'm uh, really excited to get my set here. I should have them in a week or so, and I should have my smile back. And you'll start seeing some video episodes as a result. It's the only reason I haven't done that. Remember, guys, that's dentkits.com. Thanks, guys. Now back to the show. Hey, guys, so we're back from the break. Scott, you were just saying how the Narcan had saved you there, the 55 doses or whatever it was, right? Yeah. <laughs> Pick up where yeah. you left off there. Yeah. Yeah, man. You know, um, again, right? Like, uh, like, yeah, Narcan nine times, right? Like, and, and, and all of this information as I'm laying there. And like, this is how crazy this situation was. As I'm laying there, I have correctional, like, high ups i have i hit um standing there i have police officers uh chilliwack rcmp are standing there because i was taken to chilliwack hospital um there's i hit detectives there there's these nurses there's these doctors and this nurse is just sitting there like i finally wake up and it's just like it's something you see out of like a movie right like i just remember like just kind of like opening my eyes and like everybody in the room kind of like stopping talking stopping just kind of looking at me and this nurse is like sitting beside me she's like literally sitting in a chair beside me and um she was like wow like welcome back and and i was like you know, like what happened, right? Like, and then she kind of gets into this story about, uh, about, about telling me what happened. And, uh, I mean, it's just over a course of a couple hours, like she started talking to me because then all, all of a sudden just kind of everything started happening. Right. But, um, so here's, as I was sharing before, this is how crazy this is. So my grandmother died in Chilliwack hospital and this is, this may give you goosebumps, but the nurse that saved my life was the same nurse that was with my grandmother when she died. Wow. And, and she never even acknowledged it until about two days later. It was, she was like, she came back. I I guess she had left the hospital and a couple of days later they, they, she came back and she, where she was like tending to me at that time. And she mentioned to me, she was like, last name Holshoff. She was like, did you, did you have a grandmother named Deanie or Bernadine? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And she was like, yeah, I was her, um, uh, palliative care nurse. And, uh, I, I mean, that's the last time I literally saw her. She died about, uh, about two hours after I left the hospital. Um, yeah. In, uh, in 2004 and, um, yeah, crazy, right? That's like surreal. just, yeah. Oh, right, yeah. dude. Like, <laughs> anyways so once again we'll go back to that situation that i said earlier like i just woke up after being in a coma for five days and being told that i was narcan nine times and basically you know pronounced dead you would think <laughs> <laughs> you would think yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you would think yeah. no that, no i would know, not actually no <laughs> <laughs> that that this and and don't uh, i will say this it 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 
at the, when I, it was enough at the very beginning. Like, though I really didn't have a choice. So here's what happened is during that riot, um, there were inmates that broke into other inmate cells and, and somebody got murdered. And a, a couple people died, um, and uh, there was a few overdose deaths, and uh, and and another another guy got murdered, and um, I I spent uh, fifteen months, four hundred and fifty four days in solitary confinement, um, under investigation for uh, for that murder, along with um, along with a few other people. Um, and ultimately as part of the investigation went, um, I was, uh, I guess you could say exonerated, um, from those charges. Um, and, uh, that up until just this recent, um, you know, this recent stint of, of I'm sober now five and a half years. And up until that point in time, that 15 months plus the subsequent about three and a half months after I was released was the longest I'd ever been clean and sober since I basically left high school. Um, and, uh, and so what, was it enough? You know, you'd think that if, you know, 18, 19 months, um, you know, being locked up in solitary confinement, staring at a little window, um, out into the world, dreaming about what, what's to come would have been enough. And though the, the scared straight, um, metaphor was quite applicable at that time, um, you know, I was still very much very, very, very broken, incapable of navigating and facing life's challenges, right? I had no tools, um, you know, to, to, to deal with it, uh, you know, um, that, that period of time, you would think would be enough to, to kind of cleanse one's system, the psycho psychological attachment to it. Because, you know, yeah, I, when I got out, I was, I was driven, man. You know, I, I got out, I, but I was ama emaciated. You, uh, you know, what, I'll show you a picture or something. I think on my website, not on my media website, but definitely on, on, on the, my, one of my Facebook pages or even my YouTube, there are pictures of me, comparison pictures of the day that I got out. I was 176 pounds from, from solitary confinement. They, the, the, the amount you want to talk about. I'll let you in on a little, little, uh, inside about, uh, correctional institutions. These, these federal institutions and the, the, and yeah, granted, I understand. I'm incarcerated. Okay. But it was like a, we got fed through a slot for the first six months. I was handcuffed. I had to get on my hands. I get, I had to get on face down on the floor, um, in order to be moved anywhere, anywhere at all. I got, I got, of like an eight minute shower every three days for the first three months. Um, I had to be handcuffed three on one armed escorts anywhere I went in the institution. And I had to get on my hands and basically lay down face first and had to, but, and they, they shackled me. I'm, of course I'm doing the actions yeah, and yeah, nobody can right. see this, right? That's, but in order to be moved, even like how stupid this is, Five, the, the, the yard door was across my, from my door. Even to move me from my door to the door to the yard, I had, they, they, they did that to me. Wow. They tortured us and tormented us because, I mean, 
hey, man, we smashed an institution apart, so, you know, we're the enemy and we're just the piece of shit convicts that deserve to be treated like absolute disgusting, like not even like human beings, right? We got treated so fucking poorly during those those periods of time. They would come around to do food and and for for, like usually there's an inmate server, right? Uh, But for the first like three months, it was the guards that would give us food. Now, most of us... I did not eat. I don't think I ate probably for with the exception of maybe like the fruit that they gave us or if there was a sandwich that was completely wrapped and you could tell it was untouched. But any of the food that was coming through the slots were like thrown through the slots. They would come around and they would open – they would come around and open up the slots and then you could hear the cart come down and, and it was like if you didn't get up and and jump to catch your food being thrown through the slot – your food would end up all over the floor and and then you'd have to scrape your food up off the floor and and like you know if you were that hungry you you would eat it if not right like you know so that happened for the first 3 months was that the guards fed us and it was two meals a day that's it so like apples oranges um bananas wrapped up sandwiches with peanut butter packets and things like that was basically what you, what you would eat because everything else I mean I didn't trust the food coming through No no right yeah. I had one saving grace this female officer who was on on shift every Sunday she would come and I knew her from my previous bit right and um you know, you get down to the humanity of some, with some of these people, right? Like the goon squad, as we call them, the, the the ninja turtles, because that's what they're dressed up as. Like they come down there in their riot gear every time that they want to do something, right? And like, granted, I understand there were lots of guys on the range at that time that were like, they were spitting, they were setting up their their fire sprinklers and and all this kind of stuff, right? There was a guy beside me that was on suicide watch, and he would like basically we called him Pucasso. If nobody's Aww. heard that term before, if you have a two year old or a three year that you'll know you'll understand what I'm saying but like he would cover himself in shit and then and then like bang on the door for 24 hours and then they would have to call in it, it was just it's craziness right like to experience some of that stuff right like yeah you know I, I should have damn well been scared straight when I came out right I mean that's just a, that's just a few of the things every once in a while they would they would they would find humor in um in coming in with the fire hose and so they would come down range door for door because there's there's a sense of solidarity too and and unfortunately it's one of those things that you know despite being being locked up in solitary confinement not in open population there's still a sense of of solidarity that goes to being an inmate and and being a part of the and quote unquote con code right just the stupidity that i often make i make a mockery of now that loyalty to meanwhile my mom and my kid were growing up out like you know what i mean like it's just where the where the morals were at were at that period of time right like yeah, I wanted to get out and I wanted something different and better for my life, but I still had to kind of abide by. So, you know, when everybody said blackout, you know, it was, or like, we're, we're, we're going dark, you know, you're putting your mattress up against your window and you're, we're on protest, right? And their only, their only avenue of attack would be like that you give your warnings. They give basically, they, they read you the riot code and then they crack your door and they come in and fuck you up, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Like, so, you know, and that happened a few times times right so you know and but you know what i will say this is at about the six month mark i stopped caring i stopped being a part of that i just i i was tired of getting my ass beat and my 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 
my fire hosed for, for nothing. Like I was like, this is getting me nowhere. Right. Like, right. I, I, so <laughs> yeah, at some point, right. right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I had to, bagging up all my stuff every, every couple of days. Cause they're coming around the fire. Like anyways. So, you know, I, I spent that time in solitary confinement. You know, I, I, I got out. I was 176 pounds. They let me out about three. They finally had a hearing. We had a, we had a, uh, an adjudication hearing, uh, with a, uh, um, oh, what's it called? Um, a habeas corpus. Oh, okay. okay. So they had a habeas corpus. So we took it to the Supreme Court of Canada and it was really even another, you know, disappointment of our so-called justice system is that they didn't even have all of the information and all the so-called like witness statements and video and all that kind of stuff. If I was a normal citizen, would even it, while I was incarcerated, I'd still fall under that citizen rights and freedoms as, as being under investigation. They didn't even have enough information to detain me if I was a normal citizen on the street, but yet they kept me in solitary. So I'm part of the class action lawsuit that's going on right now against federal corrections, Canada for the, uh, the, all of the incarcerate, like the, uh, the solitary confinement, the misuse of solitary confinement. But so they let me out with a couple weeks to go. So I got out 176 pounds, white as a ghost, um, you know, skinny as fuck, <laughs> more skinnier than I ever was on crack. That's for sure. Um, and, uh, and they let me out and I got out to the Hobden house in Surrey in, in, uh, 2009. And, uh, you know, I was on my way. I had, I had dreams. I had aspirations. I had, you know, this inclination to do something different with my life. I got involved with the citizens advisory committee. I started sharing my story. I, I was doing, I was at a conference with actually Dr. Gabber Mate. You know, if you ever get a chance to interview somebody, man, uh, yeah. that's, I would, absolutely recommend oh absolutely he is an amazing human being and such a profound like his insight into his awareness and knowledge into the epidemic and what is at the basis of addiction is so so bang on right yeah ryan introduced him to me some time ago yeah yeah so we, I was doing a conference and he was, he was part of it and we were speaking at SFU and, uh, and I, and I did a presentation on my experience and I was advocating for better, better, um, basically reform of, of, um, of, uh, um, like, oh, what, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, integration. Okay. Yep. yep. Right. Yep. And, uh, and I, and, and I got an opportunity and, and I got, I got noticed and I got recognized. So I started doing these, these presentations based on my experience and okay. trying to hold, hopefully change policy, right? And, uh, and talk about like the, the, the challenges as being an inmate and being, you know, lay, the labels and the coming out and, and with the, with the, you know, they give us the, the criminal code or the criminal card, right? The pet, the prison card is yeah, our IDs, yeah, yeah. you know, and trying to get those barriers away, right? And, um, and I was doing good things, you know. My my daughter my, and my daughter's mom was was coming back in my life, and uh, and you know, he, here here's the thing, right? Like I was not equipped. I didn't know how to manage life, and I was still very much in this victim state mentality. Though I had a great, um, you know, basis of motivation to do something different based on my experiences and just my genuine want and will for something different. However, as they say, right, like the, the, this, this entity and this, this force that is there is so 
fucking powerful. You said cunning, right? Like cunning and baffling. They say, you know, um, cunning, baffling and powerful, you know, the, the substance in itself in the, in the program, right? And it is so true, right? You know, I, I faced a couple of challenges, you know, a, a drink became an option one day and found myself, you know, um, dipping back in once again on parole, you know, um, and, uh, I, I found myself in a bar fight outside a, a, a Vancouver nightclub and, you know, everything comes around, right? Like though I didn't get arrested then I got right in between two organizations that were having a confrontation and found myself again on an ambulance stretcher, um, kind of unknowing of what happened. Um, my buddy that I was with took my IDs and gave them a fake name. Thank God he did that because I'd have been, arrested yeah, right yeah. right then and there right so i managed to get away with that only to end up the following weekend um at my daughter's mom's place and to find out that her and my best friend in the whole entire world a man that i absolutely idolized and worshiped god rest his soul now but um that they were actually hooking up and um, I'd gone over to spend time with my daughter and because uh, I was getting back, I was getting involved in my daughter's life and found this out. And ne- I mean, needless to say, I didn't handle it very well. Right? I was, yeah. it, oh, oh, 100%, yeah. bro. Like, yeah. like, of, f- poor me, right? Yeah. Like, you know, pity me. I, I'm just, you know, and I was just angry. I was, I was upset. I was hurt. I was a, a, abandonment, all of it, right? Yeah. Like everything that I can reflect on now and what I've learned to identify, it, it, it just perpetuated that victim mentality, right? Like, and just another excuse, right? Yeah. And ended up getting arrested the following morning by gang task force, you know, um, in Victoria, uh, associating with people I should not have been associating with in an area of town. I should not have been, uh, not have been around. And, uh, and I ended up, uh, going back to a temporary detainment unit for 35 days. Now here's where the story gets kind of cool is I got out and I was getting a tattoo of my daughter's name down the side of my rib cage, and uh, a university professor uh, who had heard me speak uh, at uh, at one of these criminal justice forums gave me a call and invited me to do a, a, a symposium, a criminal justice symposium on on reform in corrections. So I got invited to do a talk. So I did a talk in front of about fifty students and faculty at Douglas College, and. Um, and ended up at the end of it meeting who had become uh, a, my fiance, oh, and okay. she was this beautiful, young, witty, you know, inquisitive, precocious, beautiful, um, you know, uh, graduate like up up and coming um, uh, criminology and psychology graduate, okay. and uh, we hit it off right away, awesome. and um, you know. Yeah, I'll summarize a series of events because this is, this will turn out to be really, really long is I basically, she was my saving grace. Okay. And I put all of my emphasis and all of my worldly possibility into her arms, which was a burden that no person can bear. Right. Again, 
she fell head over heels in love with me and we had an amazing, you know, few years of the relationship that we had, but it was checkered with so much, so much struggle and so much challenge. The following summer, this was, this was November of, uh, of 2009. Yeah. I ended up, um, I ended up relapsing again shortly after Christmas and I ended up getting sent back again. Um, and, uh, as it so happens, they, they ended up finding out about that, that bar fight in Vancouver. So I ended up, that was a package deal for me to get sent back again. I got out, um, uh, May 25th. Day is it today? It's crazy. 26, right? 27th, 26. Yeah. I got out May 25th of 2010. And you know what? I was going to do it this time. You know, I had, I had made a decision. I walked out of the gates of, of Kent Institution on my warrant expiry from my previous federal sentence that I made a deal with for bank robbery. And I had basically said, fuck you to the big towers and I'm never coming back to this place ever again. And I really made a go of it. I enrolled in school. I, I signed up for psychology courses. I was going to become an addictions counselor. I, you know, I got all the funding organized. Uh, all within a very short period of time. Shortly after my birthday, July of 2010, I got a phone call from my mom. Actually, my sister called me first. My sister told me that my mom was not doing too well. And she was not, she wasn't, she wasn't, like she wasn't healthy. She, she had collapsed in the, in the grocery store and she was acting really weird. And then my mom called me and basically said some weird thing about if you love me and, and if you want to see me before I go, you'll come and, you'll come and see me. And he basically left right, right then and there and went straight to the, the ferry. Um, the time that it took me to get to the ferry, she had another collapse. So she was taken to the hospital. I, I arrived that night. And they were all waiting for me to come in and we, I arrived at the, ho- at the hospital and, uh, the doctor came in and, and basically told us that my mom had, uh, basically stage four cancer and that it had gone, started in her lungs and that it had gone to her brain. And what the, what the kicker of this was is that they told her about this in 2006 and being the stubborn broad that she was, you know, God bless, God rest her soul completely, you know, it's taken me a lot to forgive my mom and to accept where, where, where she was at and what she did with me. Um, but she was just a stubborn, stubborn woman who didn't want to change her lifestyle. And, uh, she left the hospital in 2006 and didn't follow up with it. And now here we are, you know, four years later and it had gotten so bad that, that there was not much they could do for her. So, um, you know, treatment options, um, it, it, that's basically what we looked at, right? So I basically moved over and, and here, like, you know, yeah, I've done some fucked up shit and, and I did a lot of stuff to, to, to build up a lot of guilt and, and shame and, and, and self pity over my lifetime. But here is where I really stacked it on. I went to the island with the intention of being like, finally, like I'm standing here with my chest out, the sun that my mom never had, right? And, um, I was going to take care of her and I was going to be a man and, and, you know, help her through this time. And I did everything but that, bro. You know, I was, I was drinking, you know, because I was free and clear, right? So, you know, I was drinking, drinking was never my problem. Only an excess of drinking was my, was my problem. And I was drinking and, and hanging out with people that I shouldn't have been hanging out with and spending time with my mom and, 
you know, smoking crack in the, in the bedroom at nighttime. And, you know, work, I was, had this job that I was doing. I was working for this, this, this family and I was rebuilding their deck and I was just funneling the money that they were giving me into, into crack. And I was with my mom for about, um, I don't know, about a good month. And, uh, and, um, yeah, ooh. Yeah, so, so the, the, I, I, and I tell this story because it, this is another, another example of the insanity and the power of this disease is that about three or four days before my mom ended up pa- passing away, I was desperate. I, I was out of money. Um, I managed to scrounge up 20 bucks and change while everybody was sleeping. And I took my sister's bike from Ladysmith to Duncan, which is about 36 kilometers on a Sunday morning at two in the morning in the pouring rain. And I rode that bike for a 20 rock of crack to a crack dealer's house and then rode that bike back because he he wouldn't buy it for crack. (laughs) I tried selling him the bike for, for more dope. And then when he denied me, I rode it back in the whole way. I remember this so clearly, man, the whole way I was like, it was like I was sitting in the back seat of my own life and like the back seat of a car watching somebody else drive. And it was so, I was so powerless and so like inferior to, to this disease and this, this, uh, this beast that was just ravishing my life right in front of everybody in my, in my, and it was like, it was on display, right? Like it was on display for the world to see. Everybody knew it. All my family was around and they knew it. Like it was so obvious. I was at that same crack shack the morning my mom went to the hospital. Um, I left my mom. I, uh, she, she, the morning that she, the morning before she died, my mom, my sister found her on the floor. I was supposed to be there. I was in a crack shack. I got a phone call asking me where I was. And, uh, I went to see my mom that, that, that morning in the hospital and they, I met them at the hospital. Um, and she knew, I knew she knew, right? Like, she knew what was going on and she, she looked right at me. And, um, and it's like, you know, in, even in that moment, you know, I, I never felt much love from my mom, but in that moment, I think I felt the most love that I've ever felt from her that even though she knew what I was doing and she knew where I'd been, she didn't care. And she just looked at me and she just said, you know, I love you and, uh, and I'm going to be okay is what she said. Um, and, uh, yeah, man, um, she, uh, she died the following night and, um, yeah, you know, I think what's crazy is here's another really crazy situation. So I, when, when, when I crawled up into bed with her after she, she died, after they pulled the plug on her, because what I think happened is they did a biopsy on her lung because she died from internal bleeding is I think that they did a, they fucking clipped her lung and, and, uh, it, it only makes sense, right? Like nobody would let me ask any questions. My, it, anyways, I won't go, I won't go there, but 
she uh she died of internal bleeding it was too much they couldn't stop it they weren't going to stop it so they just made her comfortable and they pulled the plug and she went and um i'd spent about a half an hour with her i was the last one there in the room and i just laid with her in bed and uh you know just kind of confessed the world to her right and um i was going to go and kill myself i was i, I had every intention of leaving that hospital and putting a gun in my mouth and blowing my head off. And I walked out. <laughs> my niece is going to hear this and she's just going to, she doesn't know this story obviously, but um, spoiler alert. My sister was pregnant at the time and I, I was leaving the hospital. I, I, my, 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 I knew where there was a gun. I knew where to get the bullets and I was going to end my life. I did not and could not live with what I had done. And just the guilt and the shame that I had over those last week, that week of, of that life, that period of life. As I'm leaving the hospital, I hear this, this call from the, the nurse's station and she's like, is your name Scott Holshoff? Excuse, sir, sir. And I was like, yep. And she was like, you probably want to go over to the maternity ward because your sister's in labor. So my mom died at 12.15 a.m. on October 8th of 2010. And my niece, Aubrey, was born at 11.15 a.m. on the same day. The birth of that little girl... And that moment of like that, that those nurses telling me that literally saved my life. Like if, she, if that had been 30 seconds later or those nurses wouldn't have said anything, I would not be here today among so many other, other crazy situations yet to come. But so let's fast forward a bit. Um, you know, I went in, I went into school. I left, I left that hospital, um, that the following day with a new kind of rejuvenation. I felt if there was ever a time in my life that I really felt the presence of God and, and, and the purpose to, to, to do something great and be great, it was in that moment. I, I, I felt the, the there was a reason and a purpose that all happened how it did. And, and for, 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 you know, for what it's worth, I made the best effort I was capable of making by myself for, for a short period of time. I ended up enrolling in school and kept it relatively together for a few years. Um, you know, I, I ended up graduating top of, top of my class with honors with a, with a diploma in addictions and mental health and, and youth at risk and a few others, um, you know, add on courses. It was a two year program. And, um, you know, I quickly got involved in, in the field. I was drinking here and there and, you know, I had had a few slips, um, you know, with cocaine and crack a couple times where I'd, I, you know, I'd gone off to, you know, for a couple days here and there, but I kept it relatively together with sheer will and determination and a motivation based on external circumstances, which in the end all came crashing down on me, but is, uh, I, I, you know, I did, I did really well. I, like I said, graduated top of my class. I was working at Future Shop, um, part time. I was one of the top sales associates in the company there. And I was doing all the sales training for them. I was killing it. Like I was absolutely killing it. I was finally living, 
you know, the dream and living out my potential. And, and here, here this person was still very much sick and untreated. I had still a lot of, a lot of guilt and shame that I covered up with some really fancy talk and some presentations and, you know, really, really superficially told the world that, you know, I loved my life and, and because I had all these things, like, look how great my life is and look what I've been through. Like, you know, like, and, um, and so, you know, started, started my own company, started a bracelet company and, and turned that into a half a million dollar company in, in, in two years, you know, by, by the summer of 2014, I was absolutely killing it. I was on top of the world. I was in the newspapers, they were publishing articles about me. I was on the news. Me and my girlfriend were going to get married. We were part of the, the global dream wedding. I was being interviewed like, like, Look at me, right? Bling, bling. And I had all these things because that's what I upset. That's what I thought success was, right? Mm-hmm. I believe success was an outside, an outside job, right? Mm-hmm. Look at my car. Look at my business. Look at my girlfriend. She's hot. Yep. You know, like yep. I have an education, uh, you know, all these things, right? Yep. yep. Started treatment centers. Yep. Uh, I told yeah. you about that. Like, yep. you know, one of your sponsors, I had a part in, in starting that organization. It's, it, you know, all these things outside of myself that I was, I was using as look at this was me validating myself because of look what I have. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and ultimately, and, uh, and, you know, it all just came rising up, man. And, and the skeletons started to rear their heads and the guilt came up and things started happening within my family and, and my daughter and, and the challenges came around. And I, and again, I wasn't capable of, of coping. I didn't have, you know, coping mechanisms. I didn't have coping skills. I didn't have communication skills. I didn't have a, an identity of self-worth. So as things started to get shaky, all my validation and self-worth was in everything outside of me. So as it started to cr- crumble, there, there went my identity and, and validation, right? Yeah. My girlfriend, my relationship, my fiance started to fall apart just because I wasn't being reciprocative in, in, in the love and, and I resented her for how much she loved me because I didn't love myself as much as she loved me. And, um, and then the news that, that changed ultimately the course of my life. I got a phone call and to tell me that so my brother, right? The Mr. Wonderful and the, the man who I absolutely idolized. He was my best friend. He was the one and true solid since I was a kid. He rescued me and saved me and just represented everything that I wanted to be in the world. And he was the coolest person. Like this is what I saw. This guy, I worshiped the ground that he walked on. And, you know, as I shared in my story earlier, him and my, my daughter's mom, you know, ended up, you know, um, you know, having a bit of an affair, which rocked my world. Well, I never spoke to him after that ever again. And, um, I got a phone call in the middle of September of 2014 telling me that he was dead. He died, he died in a motorcycle accident in Penticton. And, you know, um, I think within two days, um, my girlfriend found me overdosing, uh, at the end of an alley in, in Maple Ridge with a rig in my arm. I, you know, the, my whole world collapsed. I, all of the, oh my God, bro, like everything, right? Yeah. You know what? I, I, I hated, I I didn't say I hated the guy, but I was like obviously angry with him, but I was all of a sudden just mad that he, he, it was, it was crazy. It was the same with my mom because I, 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 I was so angry with my mom 
and I, and I struggled with this for so many years. I was so angry with my mom for not being the mom that, that I wanted her to be or that I thought she should have been. And then when she died, I was resentful to her because now she couldn't, I couldn't now gain that back, right? I couldn't ever have that with her. With my brother, it was the same thing, only it was the opposite. I was mad he was dead because now he couldn't know how angry I was yeah, with right? him, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I know, like, I, yeah, it was just, I was fucked, man. But then came the guilt of that. Of course, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like being, Stacking being guilty. Yeah, right now oh, you're just laying bloody. things and, yeah, yeah. Right? So, um, I had had this, so girlfriend leaves, okay, overdosing. Uh, you know, I was in rough shape. I managed to barely pull it together for the first Christmas my grandfather ever spent with me. My grandfather was a huge role, part of my life, huge, huge, huge part of my life. He was one of the only men. My grand, my dad, my dad basically showed up when I was seven years old, told me that he wasn't even sure he was my dad. And, uh, and he was basically busy building another life with another woman who was pregnant with a kid and that he didn't want to be my dad anymore. So, he left me at McDonald's and, 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 and left. That was my experience with my dad. So my grandfather took on that role big time. I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. So my grandmother died. Obviously I head spun into addiction. My grandfather was a huge, huge part of my life. He was still alive. And, um, and he met, he came for Christmas for the first time in, uh, in 2014. And I stayed sober through that. And, uh, and then shortly thereafter got back on pretty heavily. I was about to take a, a long distance road trip with my company, Custom Straps, across the country to do a trade show tour promoting a new anti, anti repellent mosquito bracelet. And, um, I had it all booked, all the money. My, my company was making a lot of money. We were, we were pulling in tens of thousands of dollars a month on these bracelets, selling them worldwide. We had global distribution, North America rights. Like it was, it was pretty big. And, um, I was a mess. I left on this road trip with like ounces of cocaine, <laughs> like a complete and utter, like just chaos. And I blew through probably 60 grand in a short amount of time, probably like four months, $60,000 worth of dope. You know, I woke, I woke up in a hotel room in Toronto in, uh, in the end of February, March, at the beginning of April of, uh, of, of 2015. And, uh, I had overdosed and, um, I, on, I, I, you I was like, on? Heroin. heroin. Okay. 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 I yeah, just, that's, you were that, talking about having 60 grand worth of cocaine. So what you were doing both? Yeah. So, so he, my cycle, here's my, here's my cycle. My cycle, obviously when, when I was in jail, it was all heroin, right? Like that's cause that's all uh, uppers are not fun in jail. No, at all. no, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah no. You want to talk about psychosis. There's nothing worse than psychosis than thinking the guards are coming for you at 24 yeah, hours, right? I know. The only time I'll, I'll sidebar you for a quick second. The only time I ever did an upper in jail was acid. Wow. Oh, bad. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. And the way it played oh, out, wow. I had to eat it in visits. So I was getting strip searched right when I was peeking up. Oh, it was a mess, man. That was a mess. Yeah. There's a whole story about that, too, of course. Right? Oh, I bet you'll yeah. have to tell me that sometime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so my cycle would be get, get loaded on, on, 
coke or crack for a couple of days and then I would have to come down. So I would always go to the heroin, right? Gotcha. And then yeah. do that for two or three days. Then the heroin would kick in and then it would be a, you know, two or three weeks on heroin. You know, this is, this was the back and forth process for years, right? Um, there was always something. It was always something. I had never completely abandoned anything for any period of time. I was either holding on to, to, to alcohol or there were pills or something, right? Like there was never a period of time where I was absolutely completely 100% abstinent and I was always using some, some lie or excuse and manipulation of the people around me to try to hold on to something, right? I didn't know how to function without some sort of substance, right? Yep. So I, I ended up leaving, I ended up leaving Toronto. I was like, I'm going to die here. I, I, and I didn't want to, and I mean, at, at that point, I really wasn't ready to die yet. I ended up on a road trip back. Um, I spent a week at my aunt's place in Saskatchewan and I sobered up. I went on a little bit of a follow-up tour in, in BC and ended up getting involved. So my brother died in, in Penticton. I ended up stupidly getting involved in some of his post-death stuff. Yeah. And to, to make a really long story short and to get to the meat and potatoes of where I'm at in my life today, I spent about a, I, I ended up in Kelowna and, um, I was heavily, heavily, like really, really involved in, in stuff up there. And, um, and I, and I brought a whole bunch of money with me and a whole bunch of dope. And I got, got, I got caught up in stuff and, and I got thick and I got deep to the point where, um, I, I, somebody tried taking me out and I got lured in again, um, to a situation, um, based on, on two opposing stories of, of shit. I won't get into too many details of it. And, um, and I got beat with baseball bats so bad to the point where the necklace that I was wearing had to be surgically removed out of the back of my head. <clears throat> now, wow. again, I've, I, I keep telling you this really cool part of this story. So there was a guy. This is, this is how, again, God, right? So they had me down. They, 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 they came at me from all directions. There was a couple of them, baseball bats. I defended myself. I started running away. They hit me. I ended up face down on the ground and they were beating me all over the place. And the guy's, the guy's foot was on the back of my neck and he was standing over me. And I guess he was going for the final blow and somebody walking their dog in the end of this logging road area seen this going on and screamed from the top of the hill something that caused them to miss. And he, I guess, look and hit the other guy's foot. Now I woke up a few minutes later and this guy was down there with his dog and this dog was like, you know, like I was pulling myself up off the ground. Um, and, uh, I was bad. Like the back of my head was mush. There was blood everywhere. And, um, wow. I collapsed a couple steps down the road and the ambulance showed up and I ended up in, in the ambulance and I spent a, spent a couple of days in the hospital and, and there was a girl that I was really, really involved with at the time. She showed up at the hospital, told them that she was my girlfriend and stuff like that. And she got me out of there because she said, they're coming back for you <clears throat> and, uh, and managed to get myself into a safe house. And, and spent about a month in the safe house getting back together and then getting kind of like putting myself back together. Obviously now really heavily, heavily, you know, using all types of stuff, mostly painkillers. And, and at that point in time, this was when fentanyl was coming in. This was in 2015. Um, and, uh, and ended up getting a meeting with one of the bosses and, 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 and dealt with it. Yeah. So, so I ended up dealing with that specific situation and walking away from that situation. And, 
you know, but that still didn't help me any because I was still heavily entrenched in this lifestyle, right? Yeah, yeah. So what ended up ultimately happening was after about a year of like just being a complete fucking loser and like, you know, being completely useless to the world and society, I ended up getting arrested. And this is where the 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 story of this part of my life takes place is I got, I got arrested on May 1st. I got released because I was overdosing and um and uh and they they basically just found me asleep at the wheel of a car. I had a whole shitload of drugs on me and the irony of it is I ended up getting th- <laughs> I ended up getting arrested 3 days later with the drugs that they didn't get on me the first time. <laughs> yeah, right? right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. because they wanted me to go to the hospital, right? So, um, I got arrested on a stolen motorcycle wearing stolen clothes. Uh, I was dealing with my girlfriend who was suicidal at the time. And I, I, you know, I say I got rescued, right? Um, you know, God has been there so, so much throughout my entire life. I spent six months in, I got arrested May, May 5th of 2017 okay. and i i spent uh may june july august and september in pre-trial and um i got a chance to go to treatment and uh, i went to treatment uh I, and I, I i you know what the first day that i walked in a buddy of mine there he hands me a big bag of meth and uh and and so the party started right yeah. <laughs> I, I i i tell i tell the story like this is that i never believed that there was anything else. I didn't believe that there was anything. I, I, to me, I had already tried everything else. I had already tried the education. I already tried the girlfriend. I already tried the, 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 the employment, the job, the, the, the accolades, the accreditations, the, the business, the, the success, the prestige, the, the money, the property. Stuff, stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So I didn't know about anything else. So I go into this 12 step program. Um, and you know, my first day I get a line of fucking math. I mean, like, well, this is a joke. This is treatment right on party on. Right. Yeah, so for right. a good two months, all I did was fuck around. I almost got caught. I juicing a piss test, almost got kicked out, begged to stay, to stay in, in the program. They ended up letting me stay and I was just fucking around. Right. Like, as, 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 as I'll say, like, I was just a spoiled, ungrateful, little punk victim that blamed the world with an ego complex that could never do wrong and that was always right. And, you know, I didn't want to take any accountability for it. I didn't know any better. Yeah. Right. So I, uh, I'm down at the creek, which is another, another extension of this institution, uh, this, uh, this facility. And I get a phone call to the office and my girlfriend is telling me that I'm on Crime Stoppers. There's a warrant out for my arrest. And I'm like, dude, if there was ever a time where I knew, like, deep, deep down inside that I was fucked and that I knew that I, you know, like, you know, when you're, you're a kid and you did something, you did something wrong and, and like, you go home and like somebody and like, Somebody says something about it and you're just like, I'm fucked. Like, oh no, right? They know or like, you know, who, who did this or who broke the window? It's like, oh, it's like I knew. And like everything just came like dark and just like, oh my God, right? So 
I get shipped back up to the lake. This You're going to love this part. I get shipped back up to the lake, and this is on Friday. Saturday morning, I get driven up to the lake, and Saturday and Sunday, I'm kind of like detoxing because I was still snorting pills. I was still fucking around and that from that whole previous week, right? No dope, just medications, right? And um, so I'm now detoxing, and just everything is just playing out in my head, all the should-haves, all the would-haves, all the could-haves, and I just knew that I I, I – I fucked this chance up, right? And, um, you know, these men at this treatment facility that I was at, they are, were amazing people. They, they took me for the broken little child that I was and, and spoke to me just the way that I needed to be spoken to and just really graciously gave me the once and final opportunity to truly, truly be truthful and make a decision. And they sat me down Monday morning before the police. I got called up to the office. The cops were on their way. I had to turn myself in. That was the only option, even though I wanted to run. But I knew that that wouldn't get me anywhere. And um, they sat me down and they asked me some pretty stern questions about what it is that I really wanted to do with my life and whether or not I was really finally ready to be honest and do something about it. And uh, and 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 I said, yeah, yeah, I am. And I told them everything. They said, tell us what, what's been going on. And I told them everything, the whole story, um, the, the pills, the, the, the math, the piss test, all, all of it. I was completely and utterly honest. And I was just like emotional and I was just like broken. And, uh, and they said, okay, well, the, the cops are here. You know, we're going to have a chat about what we're going to do about your future and make a decision whether or not we're going to accept you back here or not. And you go and do what you have to do. And, uh, you know, we'll be in touch. And the police officer came in and, he walked me out to the car and, uh, and, you know, he was really respectful and he didn't handcuff me in front of everybody. And he sat me in the car and then he put handcuffs on me and went, man, when he shut that door, dude, it was like, I was catapulted to another dimension. I was floating. I was, in, I knew that I was in the cop car, but it was like the cop car didn't exist. I was just kind of floating there. And just this warmth and this like, just this really kind of like enveloping presence of, of energy was around me. And I could feel the car start to drive, but I was just like, I was just kind of taken away. And this very warm sense. So this is God coming and sitting beside me in this cop car and putting my hand, his arm around me. And though it was a very warm and comforting and peaceful presence in a safe, like experience there was this frustrated energy of like and i say this it's like god kind of put his arm around me and said like why are you so fucking ungrateful and so unappreciative and why are you wasting all of this life that i've given you and i began to see things so when i was when i was six years old i cut my ankle in in, on a piece of glass in nanaimo and um, I, re- I remember at, at one point later on in my life, my mom telling me kind of the story, but I later validated this with my aunt that I had actually died. They'd actually pronounced me dead at the hospital because the ambulance never showed up and my mom had to drive me in, my, her, in her neighbor's car and get me to the hospital. And I'd lost so much blood because it was an artery in my ankle that they couldn't get blood to me fast enough. And it started with that. And then he kind of took me through all the other times 
and all the things that I had forgotten. Now, I've shared some things with you. There's still a lot of other stuff that's happened that, that I never got an opportunity to speak about. Like I said, this is, it's a, it's a pretty extensive story, but he started to show me all of the things that I, that he'd been there and, and he started and I was there and I was there and I was there and I was there. And at the end of it, he, he made a very clear statement to me. It's just like, it's never been a matter of my absence for you. It's been more or less your absence for me is what the sense that I got. Now, this isn't like me talking like it, like a tangible, like vocalized conversation. It's like that, you know, that little voice in the back of your head where you just get this sense, right? And, and, and so this is, this is like, I'm like, like just baffled. Like I'm just, I'm like, I'm in this presence and it's like, it's very clear. And I just felt just so, so safe, so at peace, so like just vulnerable. And he just like, it just, it, everything made sense. And, and in, in that moment, I realized that, that I was, and it was like, you know, you, 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 you're destined and you're meant to be so much more. And, and I created you to be great and you're wasting it. And, you know, my, my tit, tit, my back, my back and forth from him was kind of cocky in the sense where it's like, okay, well, then if I'm, I'm supposed to be this and then, you know, like there, I was in kind of challenging it. Right. And, um, I ended up in, in, in Kelowna cells. They transferred me to Kelowna cells and, um, and, and here's where it gets really cool is I, I had this back and forth conversation with, with God during this time. And it's like, okay, so here's, here's the deal is if really, if you're really God and all powerful and I'm just not hallucinating out of stress and, and, and emotion, then, you know, let's, uh, get me out. Get me out. The, the crown was asking for detention. My lawyer, who is one of the best lawyers in Western Canada for criminal defense, for, for narcotics and stuff like that. This was a home invasion, apparently, that I had been involved in that I had really had nothing to do with. It, the, ultimately, the charges ended up getting dropped, um, you know, later on. But um, it was a violent offense and I'd done federal time for violence. So the Crown was like, nope, not letting you out at all. I I wanted to push for, for release. And uh, and my my lawyer was like, I don't think it's a good idea. So we went for it. I went up in in the cells from the time that I left the the holding tanks talking to my lawyer to the time I got up into the courtroom. My lawyer smirked at me. The judge came in. Uh, the the crown said uh, we're, we've uh, we've had a negotiation and we're going to consent to release. And I was just like, I I'm I'm surprised I didn't pass out. Like I was like, feel the blood rushing from my head. Like I was like, no way, right? Like no fucking way. And so. I got back out, but you know, the thing is, is that here I am, I'm believing in, I believe in God. I believe that there's something out there that that's, that's protecting me is very clear. Obviously I'm, I'm now seeing my life exactly for what it was and all the times that I should be dead, right? Previous to my arrest, I had overdosed three times, twice of which I had to be Narcan multiple times to come back from, you know, like there are no excuses or no reasons or justifiable answers medically or, or like, you know, logically that I'm, I should be here. Right. I went back to the treatment center. Um, the, 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 you know, I'm meandering around. I'm kind of lost. The guys at the treatment center. This is the best part is, uh, the Rick Edwards, who is the coordinator and the director. He calls me in his office 
And, you know, he sits me down and he kind of like really puts me on the spot, you know, you know, and, uh, he says, you know, like such a smart guy, right? Like one of the smartest guys that have ever come through here, but that's like either the worst thing for you. It could be the best thing for you. You know, it just depends on how you choose to use it, you know, and like, what do you really want for your life? And, um, he, he challenged me. He said, you know, when he asked me a question, he says, when have you ever put a hundred percent into anything in your life other than your addiction? And in one kind of sweeping moment, I re- I looked at my life and I, 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 like, like a broken child, I say, I admitted, like, I finally had an opportunity to speak. And I just said, never, never, honestly, never. And I, and I, and, and in that moment, I look back and seen all the things that I had done and all the things that I had accomplished at like 70, 60, 70, 80%. And just, just kind of realized like, wow, man, like I had done all this stuff and I was really not even really given it that much of a, of a serious effort. You know, maybe I could really do something great, right? And then he said to me, he says, I have a challenge for you. He says, uh, or more or less a deal. Could work out to your benefit either way. I said, but, you know, it depends on how much work you're willing to put into it. He says, you're willing to take the deal or the challenge? I said, sure, what? He says, you give me 90 days. 90 days of your absolute 100%. He says, I want you to start doing some work. And he turned around, he handed me the book of uh, Narcotics Anonymous, the the um the text the how and why it works and the 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 the, the step guide and he said you give me a hundred percent of your effort for the next 90 days in this i said i don't want to see you no fucking gym no wood pile no kitchen all the things that i was doing in the treatment center to keep me distracted and right don't you know how good of a cook i am right like you need me in the kitchen right like <laughs> i said i don't care about any of that like nothing you don't come out of your room other than group for food and for meetings until you're done step three. And he says, if you, if you do 90 days and if you're not happy with the results, he says, I'll, uh, I'll sign your release papers anywhere you to anywhere you want to go. Awesome. And I said, uh, deal. Yeah. I said, deal, let's do it. And, yeah. uh, you know, to make the following just nice and snippet, cause we're coming up on our, on our, on our hour limit here again is, uh, is I'm now five and a half years. Clean and sober. Wow. And I what, have, what else are you up to? What else you got? Yeah. Tell me, <laughs> tell me what you got so, going on. Yeah. So I had to go back to jail. So I ended up getting sentenced. And um, I, I, I went I went back. I went back at uh, 18 months. Um, I ended up getting uh, the, the crown wanted six years um, because of the overwhelming support that I had from my community. I got back into baseball. I got back into community support. I got back into volunteering, um, and doing service work. I got back into doing stuff for schools and, uh, doing speaking events. I started my own counseling. Um, you know, and, uh, I went, went in with 52 letters of support to the sentencing judge. And though, because I had been convicted of, of, of previous, um, intent, charges so possession with the purpose of trafficking his hands were tied i had to get a i had to get sentenced and he ended up giving me two years less a day and i ended up with 18 months with the time that i'd already served i did nine months i got parole to king haven i got out of king haven um uh feb would have been in a provincial institution yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so a totally yeah. different scene for you there. A little easier to do 100%. your time. In, in, you know, 100%. Your, yeah. Oh, bro, I put myself into a sex offender camp. <laughs> and I'm serious. Like, And yeah, it was yeah, funny I because when I actually why, put, yeah. the, put the paperwork in, 
and I put the paperwork in because it was here in Chilliwack, right? And, the, and I, they had me up in OCC. So I was completely away from all my family, friends and my support. And the only provincial jail close enough here was here or Fraser, but Fraser's a max, right? And they had a, 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 a program called the Right Living Community, which was all about reintegration and, and recovery and stuff. So, you know, not, not an entirely sex offender camp, but they do offer the sex offender program there. But I had to sign a whole bunch of waivers, you know, <laughs> yeah. because in the, even the warden came down and said, like, why are you putting in a request? And I just, you know, I said, I'm, I'm changed, man. I, 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 it's where my family is, where my support is, it's where my recovery. I got to do a recovery group in jail. Like it was very cool the experience when I walked into those cells, I I I looked up to the sky and I said, okay, I accept this challenge, and I and I and I went in with a completely open mind of an opportunity to do something different and to persevere through. By that time, my mentality was all warrior, beast mode, non-victim. I'm victorious. The work that I had done, the the grace and the blessings that I'd had to minister to men in there to show them what's possible from who I used to be, right? So I got out. I they part of my parole package was to go to uh, to go to a treatment again. So I agreed to go to King Haven. I left King Haven. I went to Elliot House, which is a halfway house. Um, I got out of that that halfway house on April fifth of uh of 2000 of 2020 and i moved into this house in the basement i was just doing a little video before we did this on my live and i said i moved into this house april 5th 2020 into the basement i had four duffel bags three or four duffel bags worth of stuff i had a, about 2500 dollars in my bank account from money that i had been saved up working i had a few boxes of personal items and when I got out, I had an ambition and a desire to absolutely destroy the world and destroy life with the best of my ability. And I ran into some very great opportunities and people of mentors. I am the owner, co-owner of a moving company called Gorilla Moving Company. We are rated as one of the top moving companies in Western Canada. We have over 400 five-star reviews. I bring my principles and values of our recovery program to our moving company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's my background is, too. And I, I think I mentioned that, but I was yeah. a mover most of my life. Yeah. Anybody that knows yeah. me knows me as a mover, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great job, right? You know, like, and, and it is, I'll, I'll talk about for a second, and, you know, in recovery, look at it, stay away from the guys that, you know, <laughs> I always said there's only one form of life lower than a mover and that's a roofer, but, <laughs> but no, seriously, the sense of accomplishment you get, Every single day, right? You know, um, my, my co-host on the weekend there, Carl the Atheist, remember it, once him and I, we show up at this house. This is a funny story. and It's quick. The walk's not shoveled and the snow is like up to our knees, right? Oh. And you're like, oh man, come on, right? And she, customer opens the door, looks at the at the straight truck we have up there, the five ton and says, I thought they were sending professionals. There's no way you're getting all that in my in that one truck. I was like, holy shit. Well, let, let me see, ma'am. You know, let me check it out. They wouldn't let us take anything apart. The dining room table. Like, no. I was like, well, how do you expect me to do my job and get it in the truck if I can't take it apart, right? That's how they delivered it. Well, I don't know, right? Their daughter videotaped us for the first hour as we went around the house so they could make sure that we didn't do anything stupid and insisted on not letting us leave the front door open so that because of the heat bill. I said, well, that's fine. Then what if you better stand there and open that thing because the first time I've got to, it's coming off. Right, like the first time I got to put down a two hundred pound dresser, it's coming off. Right, <laughs> you know, like believe that. So anyway, 
the end of the day, she's hugging us. She's crying. She is so unbelievably happy with us. And there's just no other job that I've ever done with that kind of accomplishment, right? You take somebody, all their stress in the world and turn it into just this great thing, right? By the time you're done, right? So yeah, it was, we've, I really liked the job for that, right? And, and I'm thinking back and, you know, early recovery, that's a good job. Go get it in the summer. You're going to work your ass off. You know what I mean, right? Stay away from the guys after work, but right? <laughs> yeah. we, we have our whole organization is all men in recovery. Really? And oh yeah, wow. and it's such a blessing to have guys that we've been able to like the success of our company has allowed to branch off and and support my Diamond Life organization and open houses that we provide housing for these guys. But I'll tell you something, just 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 to touch base on what you just said and the hugging and stuff like that. You know, I've got a couple guys in my organization that are on bail right now for some pretty serious stuff. Yeah. And to see at the end of the day, these little old ladies mm-hmm. hugging these guys and Tattoos just going on off. And, or whatever. Right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And talking the up like, oh, they're so amazing. And just like, how cool is it? Like, you have no idea. And I tell these guys, and I'm like, you guys, like these customers, they love you. They love you for who you are, who you're, who you're being, the quality of human being that you are. It is such a gratifying, you know, experience to go through that knowing. And like, I'll tell, I'll tell you this one story. I, I remember getting out of the pen in 2004 and I, I bought this little old lady, um, her groceries. She was short on her groceries at Shoppers Drug Mart and I paid for her groceries. And this lady made a deal. She was like, Oh my God, you're just an angel. And, blah, blah, blah. and deep, but deep down inside, yeah. I felt this like, if you only knew of what a piece of shit that I was, right. would you really be? There was no validation in it, right? Yeah. Like I was so guilty and so burdened with hate towards myself and my image. And if you knew who I was and what I'd done, you wouldn't be saying that. Yeah. Right. 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 And, and the, 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 the ability that I have today in my life to not just walk with confidence and clarity, but the integrity that I am able to live through and through is is about as genuine and authentic as it is. There's another promise, a couple of them that I'll I'll really touch on and then then I'll I'll I'll, I'll close it. Is is that um you know we will not we will not regret regret the past nor with the shut the door on it. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. The day that God came to me and 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 basically showed me my life the day that he rescued me and saved me and gave me a purpose there has yet to be a day where i haven't been able to use in in some shape or form something that i've been through something that i've healed from in order to help somebody else and what a fucking gift that is Mm -hmm. to be able to look somebody in the eyes and say I understand because I've been there and here's how I healed from it. Right? Like my life today 
is so like minus all the stuff like dude i have some cool shit man like i have had such a blessing the success of my businesses i mean me and my business partner have seven companies between the two of us we're both ambitious we're both entrepreneurs <laughs> i often you say know, if all the drug addicts in the world got sober the rest oh, of you would be screwed you'd be working for us right <laughs> you know right it's the same philosophies <laughs> and principles yeah, it right. is yeah, yeah. And i yep. tell guys that all the time you ever have any idea what an addict goes through and does in order to obtain <laughs> the insecurity, secure... the, the perseverance, oh. the, just to, just to maintain your habit is like beyond right? that. That level of of commitment is is something that most people will never attain in their life, right? <laughs> you know, right? they already have it. You just got to wake people up to the reality that it already exists inside of them. They just got to find something else to be passionate about, yep. right? Yep. Absolutely. So it's cool. I am very blessed. I have a lot of gifts. I have a lot of blessings. I, I've, I've transcended a lot of the material things. I, I have a, a pendant that my, my, in part of my character development, I got to choose. I did a podcast or, or a master class with Tom Bilyeu and, um, Dean Graziosi and Tony Robbins once. And it was about character development. And I got to choose a character that I, that I, that I, I idolized and I chose Superman. And though I can't be Superman, I can live out Superman characteristics and, and, and values and integrities and, and try to strive to be the best person I can be. Right. Yeah. 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 And so there are small things that are in my life that, that are constant reminders. But at the end of the day is that I could be, you could take all of this from me because this is not what makes me anymore. Right. I, I have a presence with God and I'm not biblical. This is not religious at all. And again, like, you know, for everybody out there who's listening to this story about the programs, a lot of misconception about the programs of the AA and NA program. It is, it is attraction. It's not promotion. And like, if my message can stand for anything, it's finding a higher power that's not yourself. It's finding something that you're connected to that, that is greater, greater than just the existence of just you. And even if it's just love. It's just such a beautiful thing to be a part of and to be able to have a purpose that's fulfilled in something and that every single person out there who's struggling in their addiction right now, if you're listening to this, you have a built-in purpose already inside of you just because of the challenges and struggles that you've survived and been through that if you get clean and sober, that gives somebody else the hope that they can do it too. Yeah, I like that. I really like that. I feel like we could sit here and talk for hours. Right? <laughs> right? There's so, yeah, right. There's so much. There's so many There's so many things. That brings us to my favorite part of the show. That's Daily Gratitudes. Hey, this is Scott from the New New Friends podcast, the podcast for adults who love to laugh at adulting. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Ashes to Awesome. The Daily Gratitudes are brought to you by the New New Friends podcast. Please check us out, newfriendspodcast.com. We're streaming on all major platforms. If you just need laughter in your week, just an escape from what's going on in your life, I highly recommend my podcast to get you through that week, bring some levity and, and make you laugh. So check us out. No New Friends Podcast on all streaming platforms. That's newfriendspodcast.com. And now here are your daily gratitudes. And remember, you are loved. You've been listening now, so, you know, I'm going to ask you for some, right? <laughs> Why don't you give me a few there, Scott? You know, um, every day that I wake up, I put my feet on the ground and I say, thank you for this life. Thank you for breath. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for grace. Thank you for family, friendship, and forgiveness. 
And then I go into the third step prayers and the serenity prayer. And then I ask for guidance and strength to face all of my challenges today with the best attitude possible and to stay sober no matter what. I could be grateful for so many things, but at its core, the ability today to be able to breathe, to be able to walk and talk and share my story and the freedom to make decisions and choices in being the best person that I can be on a, on a daily basis. Because when you're in your addiction, there's no freedom. There's no freedom to make my decisions. There's no freedoms to choose my behaviors. There's just slavery and bondage, right? And I'm just grateful at its most simplest form that today I have breath, I have life, I have a heartbeat, and everything else is a bonus, man. And you? <laughs> ah, my gratitudes are, are endless. You know, the stories on the show, all of them, every day of the week, and Anybody that might be listening for the first time, you know, we've got, you know, the, the Memorial Mondays, we've got Tuesdays like today, uh, Wednesdays with, with Ryan. I'm grateful for Ryan. He's awesome, right? isn't he? Isn't he? He's yeah, just, I'm and like Ryan and I knew each friend. other in grade school, right? We go yeah. back so long and I never could have imagined that, you know, after 25 years apart that, you know, we link up again and basically over the show is how that happened. And, and then how, how look where we are, right? And Ryan introduces me to the entire recovery community in lower mainland bc right it all comes like that's that that he is a, a window into all of that or a door into all of that so i'm pretty grateful for ryan i am every single day and the thursdays you know we have we have this stupid funny thursdays but i need to laugh too because it's pretty serious shit and then fridays with uh the families uh those stories catch right. me too and i'm grateful for every single one of them lisa said something in my interview with her last friday in 101 where she wishes that there had been something like this around 20 years ago Right. And I couldn't have imagined the significance of that statement right. until somebody like Lisa says it. The story, I'm so grateful and I'm grateful like yourself. I get to help some people in a day and that's pretty cool. Right. Profound. That's really cool. Right. You know, yeah. Finally and, and always the last gratitude goes out to the listeners. You guys are, you're sharing it. You're, you're talking about it. You're, you're right. you and your rating. Please keep doing all of those things because every time you do, you're getting me a little bit closer to living my best life. And my best life is to make a humble living, spreading the message. And the message is this. If you are in active addiction right now, today could be the day. Today could be the day that start that lifelong journey. Reach out to a friend. Reach out to a family member. Call into detox. Go to a meeting. Do whatever the hell it is you need to do to get that journey started. Because it is so much better on the other side. And if you're the loved one of somebody suffering in addiction, you're just taking a, a long time to listen to us talk. If you could just take another minute out of your day and text that person, let them know they are loved. Use the words. You are loved. That little glimmer of hope just might be the thing that brings them back. Sometimes it feels like there ain't to believe in, but I believe that we're out here for a reason. You don't think you're a fighter, I put on myself for years Tired from my 20s The whiskey bottles and beers Tired of smiling While I've been holding back tears But I believe I can do it So I'm here I'm a believer I believe I'm a believer I believe I've been 
told I have a death wish, no one's interested, cold and too aggressive, close to hypertension, I'm broken from the pressure, explosive with my temper, I'm sober but I'm stressing and hoping it gets better. Am I falling off, should I give it up or put it all on pause, let go of this dream so I can visit home and talk to mom, maybe all I need is another Instagram post, with a quote about believing in yourself when you're low. You don't think you're a fighter, but I know you are, and you are a liar, you say you are, you don't think that you're worth it, but I think you are, and I think you're perfect, the way that you are, maybe I'm weaker, and I know I've lost before, but I'm a believer, Nothing is impossible. I'm a believer. I believe. I'm a believer. I believe. You don't think you're a fighter.